Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas without It's a Wonderful Life. The movie, directed by Frank Capra and made for Liberty Films in 1946, is generally regarded as one of the most popular and heartwarming films ever made. Both Frank Capra and the star of the picture, James Stewart, both regarded the movie as their own personal favourite out of all the films they had either directed or starred in. Surprisingly, it was not a huge success at the time of release, but due to repeated screenings at Christmas time on television throughout the 1970s, thanks mainly to the copyright protection slipping and the picture falling into public domain, it gradually became a staple of the festive season's TV schedules. It would earn five Oscar nominations, and the story of George Bailey and his struggles against Henry F. Potter and his own self-doubting nature in the small town of Bedford Falls would go on to capture the hearts of all those that have seen it. The movie, as well as being charming, is also quite bittersweet and dark in places, with nods towards Dickens, but there's the perfect festive blend of heroes, villains, comedy drama, love and laughter. Ladies and gentlemen, join me as I tell the story of It's a Wonderful Life. I said I wish I'd never been born. You've got your wish. You've never been born. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. Now, you're Ernie Bishop, and you live in Bailey Park with your wife and kid. That's right, isn't it? I live in a shack in Potter's Field, and I ain't never seen you before in my life. I'm going home and see my wife and family. This house ain't been lived in for 20 years. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. You weren't there to save Harry. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. You really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! I want to live again! Merry Christmas! Happy New Year to you! the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down.
our story starts back in February 1938. American novelist Philip Van Doren Stern was awoken suddenly from a dream one night with ideas for a short story similar to Dickens' Christmas Carol running through his head. He jotted down several thoughts and ideas with the intention of fleshing out the story into something more tangible. Stern had graduated from Rutgers in 1924 and initially he forged a career in advertising before becoming a designer and an editor for well-known publishing houses such as Simon & Schuster. In later life, he became well-known as a historian and an author of some 40 works. His specialist field lay within the history of the American Civil War and according to his obituary, he was widely respected by scholars. World War II, however, put a hold on the short story that he had been devising and he became a member of the planning board of the United States Office of War Information. Following this, he was appointed General Manager of Editions for the Armed Services, responsible for the bright idea of resizing popular books in order that they could fit into the pockets of military uniforms. Stern's wartime jobs put paid to the idea of his short story for several years, but eventually, in 1943, the story, now 4,000 words long and entitled The Greatest Gift, was in need of a publisher. Stern searched across town, using all his contacts trying to find a publisher. Unable to find one willing to take on his work, he sent out 200 copies as extended Christmas cards to friends and family that December. His daughter, Marguerite Stern Robinson, recalled many years later, I was in third grade and remember delivering a few of these cards to my teachers and my friends. My father, who was himself from a mixed religious background, explained to me that while this story takes place at Christmas time and that we were sending it as Christmas cards to our friends, it's a universal story for all people in all times. The following Christmas, Reader's Scope magazine published The Greatest Gift in their December 1944 issue, and Good Housekeeping magazine also ran it the same month, this time retitled The Man Who Was Never Born. Prior to the short story receiving its more widespread readership through these publications, the original pamphlet, one of many most likely distributed by the young Marguerite Stern, came to the attention of David Hempstead, a producer at RKO. Hempstead, in turn, showed it to Cary Grant's Hollywood agent. And in April 1944, RKO bought the rights to the story for $10,000. The aim was to create a movie based on the story with Cary Grant in the lead role. Scripts were written and rewritten. Yet it just didn't seem right. The script just didn't seem to work. At this time, Executive Vice President of Production at RKO was a man called Charles Kerner. Kerner probably is best remembered today as the man who fired Orson Welles from the studio. During his tenure at RKO from 1942 to 1946, Kerner turned around the studio's financial performance with a string of successful movies such as Cat People, Murder My Sweet, I Walk With a Zombie and The Bells of St Mary's. By 1945, after several attempts at rewriting the script, RKO were desperate to offload The Greatest Gift somehow. Kerner showed what they had to Frank Capra. Capra, liking what he read, paid the equivalent $10,000 
and immediately planned to film the script through his own production company, Liberty Films. Liberty Films already had a nine-film distribution agreement with RKO, and so impressed was Capra with the source material and the first drafts of the screenplay, he threw in three other scripts for free. In order to rewrite the existing script, Capra brought in husband and wife writing team Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. The Hackett's had a hugely successful Hollywood writing career with Academy Award screenplay nominations for Father of the Bride and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But perhaps their most famous work, also garnering Oscar nominations, were the screenplays for The Thin Man and After the Thin Man, featuring hilarious and witty exchanges between the two leads, William Powell and Myrna Loy. The Thin Man was one of the major hits of 1934, and the script, considered to show a modern relationship in a realistic manner for the first time, is considered groundbreaking. The Hackett's took the existing three scripts and created something more manageable. Also brought on board in an attempt to polish their ideas a little further were Joe Swirling, Michael Wilson and Dorothy Parker no less. Swirling, like the Hackett's, had an enviable track record with regard to his writing. He had previously worked with Capra on Ladies of Leisure in 1930 and other screenplays throughout the 30s and 40s including Platinum Blonde, Lever to Heaven and Hitchcock's Lifeboat. He received an Academy Award nomination for the Sam Wood-directed Pride of the Yankees starring Gary Cooper and he was also uncredited for his work on Gone with the Wind in 1939. Michael Wilson, best known at this point as writer of Western screenplays, would go on to win an Oscar for his script for A Place in the Sun in 1951. Eventually, Wilson would be blacklisted by the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and under different pseudonyms he would co-write the David Lean classics The Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia. Dorothy Parker, well-known poet, writer and satirist, was also no stranger to screenplays, having written the 1937 version of A Star Is Born, and with her penchant for wisecracks, her wit would prove useful in polishing the new script written by the Hackett's. The script itself would undergo several revisions throughout pre-production, as well as during filming. Once filming had been completed, however, the final screenplay credit went to Capra and the Hackett's, with additional scenes credited to Joe Swirling. Incidentally, Dalton Trumbo, another future victim of the blacklist, had also written a draft of the screenplay that differed considerably from the final film. In Trumbo's version, George Bailey was an idealistic politician who slowly grows more cynical as the story progresses and then tries to commit suicide after losing an election. The angel appears and shows in Bedford Falls as it would have been, not if he had never been born, but as it would have been if he'd gone into business instead of politics.
And so, on to the movie itself. It opens with an illustrated storybook depicting wintry scenes. As the pages turn, we see the credits. Whilst in the background, we hear the tune of Buffalo Girls, which will go on to play a more significant role later on. We then get our first glimpse of Bedford Falls, a typical American small town somewhere in New York State. It's Christmas Eve, and we can hear prayers being said from friends in the town for a man named George Bailey. The camera then pans over locations in the town, some of which will become much more familiar to us as the story unfolds. There's Gower's drugstore, Martini's, the local church, Bedford Falls Garage and George's own home. And it's here we hear the voices of his children. The camera shot then dissolves slowly up into the dark night sky. A sky filled with stars. We see two pulsating galaxies coming to view and the voices of two angels talking to each other. The angels Joseph and Franklin have heard the prayers from Bedford Falls and decide that they should send down a guardian angel for George Bailey. The only angel available is Clarence Oddbody, played by Henry Travers, Angel Second Class a charming yet inept apprentice who is yet to earn his wings. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night, you're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's a clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We've passed him up right along. Because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on Earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? You will spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? Oh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey, and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Poor George. Sit down. Sit down? What do we... If you're going to help a man, you want to know something about him, don't you? Well, naturally, of course well, I... keep your eyes open. We now see Bedford see Falls slowly come into Where? focus. I, We've I gone back in time nearly oh, 30 years to 1919. Wings yet. Now look, I'll help you out. Concentrate. Begin to see something? Why, yes, this is amazing. If you ever get your wings, you'll see all by yourself. Oh, wonderful. Yay! 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 
Hey, who's that? 12-year-old George Bailey, played by Bobby Anderson, is playing with his brother Harry, portrayed here by young actor Harry Noakes. Something happens here you'll have to remember later on. Sliding down a snow-covered hill on shovels onto the local pond that's frozen solid by the harsh weather. But not quite solid, for as Harry slides down the hill, he rushes past the safe area and plunges into the icy water. George jumps in and saves him. And we learn that George's heroics earned him a bad cold, resulting in an infection that would leave him deaf in his left ear for the rest of his life. George saved his brother's life that day. Bobby Anderson had a brief 13-year career in Hollywood from the age of 7 until he was 20. His screen debut in 1933 was in The Grapes of Wrath, starring Henry Fonda. He's probably best known for his portrayal of the young George Bailey, but he also went on to appear in another Christmas-themed movie the following year, The Bishop's Wife, starring Cary Grant. In an earlier draft of the script, this scene plays out slightly differently. The scene had the boys playing ice hockey on the river, which happens to be on Potter's property, as Potter watches with disdain. George shoots the puck, but it goes astray and breaks the no trespassing sign and lands in Potter's yard. Potter becomes irate and the gardener releases the attack dogs, which causes the boys to flee. Harry falls in the ice and George saves him with much the same result. Moving on to the next scene, we discover that George is working at the local drugstore owned by Old Man Gower, played here superbly by H.B. Warner. Warner, English by birth and a veteran of the silent era. He was a favourite of Frank Capra's and he appeared in his productions of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, You Can't Take It With You, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Lost Horizon. Mr. Potter! Who's that? A king? That's Henry F. Potter. The richest and meanest man in the county. On his way to work one afternoon, George watches as a horse-driven hearse-like carriage passes by. Inside, Henry F. Potter, the richest and meanest man in the county. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! At the store, George quickly sets to work, serving the flirtatious eight-year-old Violet Bick, who is desperately vying for George's attentions. Also at the counter is young Mary Hatch, the childhood sweetheart he will eventually marry. Hello, George. Hello, Mary. Hello, Violet. Two cents worth of shoelaces? She was here first. I'm still thinking. Mary, unlike Violet, who only orders candy shoelaces, orders a chocolate sundae, but rejects George's offer of coconuts on top. Here you are. Help me down? Help you down? Made up your mind yet? I'll take chocolate. With coconuts? I don't like coconuts. 
you don't like coconuts. Say, Brainless, don't you know where coconuts come from? Look at here. From Tahiti, the Fiji Islands, the Coral Sea. A new magazine. I never saw it before. Of course you never. Only us explorers can get it. I've been nominated... When he bends down in front of her, she whispers into his deaf ear, vowing... Is this the year you can't hear on? George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. She already knows that George is the only man she'll ever love, but he doesn't hear her. He boasts that on his adventures he plans to have a couple of harems and maybe three or four wives. George! George! Yes, sir? You want to pay to be a canary? No, sir. While George is finishing fixing her order, he discovers a recent telegram sent to druggist Mr Gower, informing him of the tragic death of his son Robert due to influenza. Distraught over the news and drinking heavily as a result, Mr Gower mistakenly mixes a pill prescription containing poisonous cyanide. Gower gives the order to George for an emergency delivery. Mr Gower, do you want something? Anything? No. Anything I can do back here? No. I'll get them, sir. Take, take those caps and over Mrs Blaine. Get away from Yes, sir. But for poor George, although obedient and diligent, he realises that the prescription is fatal. But he faces a dilemma. Should he deliver it? They have the diphtheria there, haven't they, sir? Yeah. Is it a charge, sir? Yes, charge. Mr. Gower, I think... Oh, that Yes, sir. As he leaves the store, Mary is still sitting at the soda fountain counter, watching him as he dashes off. Not knowing what to do, young George spots a sign with the words, Ask Dad, he knows. And so, George runs to his dad, Peter Bailey, played here perfectly by Samuel Hines for some fatherly advice. Hines, a Harvard graduate, was a lawyer in Hollywood until the stock market crash of 1929, in which he lost most of his money. He had an interest in theatre acting and decided to take it up full-time at the age of 54. He would go on to appear in over 200 movies, usually playing judges or politicians. Apart from his role here, he's probably best known as Dr. Kildare in a series of movies throughout the 1940s, or as Judge Slade in Destry Rides Again. shaping up into a storm. Uncle Billy, telephone. Who is it? Bank examiner. George's father, head of the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan Association, is busy in his office confronting Potter. George is headed off by his absent-minded Uncle Billy, played by Thomas Mitchell, and told not to disturb them. George sneaks into his father's office and listens to the conversation between his father and Potter. 
Just you put any real pressure on these people of yours to pay those mortgages? Time's up bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of way. Well, foreclosed. I can't do that. These families have children. They're not my children. The contrast here between Bailey and Potter is clear. Is a business or a charity war? Well, all right. Not with my money. Potter wears black, sits in a wheelchair, and is a hard-skulled, villainous, miserly banker, demanding immediate payments, and whose consuming goal in life is to destroy the building and loan. Peter Bailey? Well, he's a champion and a defender of the rights of the little man, refusing to foreclose on the mortgages of families in town. Potter insults Bailey. All right, son, all right, thanks. I'll talk to you tonight. George's father rushes him out of the office without giving him a chance to ask about the pills. Still unsure what to do, George returns to the store with the undelivered capsules. What? Why, that medicine should have been there an hour ago. Before learning of the mistake, however, Mr. Garris on the phone to the family are still expecting the delivery. In one of the more powerful and emotional scenes in the movie, Gower angrily slaps George's sore ear for disobediently not delivering the order, although the boy describes the druggist's error. Where's Miss Blaine's voice of capsules? Didn't you hear what I said? Yes, sir. I... What kind of tricks are you playing with? What, what way you right into the limit and right away? Don't you know that boy's very sick? Hey, you're my store here. You lazy loafer. Mr. Gower, you don't know what you're doing. You put something wrong in those capsules. I know you're really me. You got the telegram and you're upset. You put something bad in those capsules. It wasn't your fault, Mr. Gower. <laughs> Just look and see what you did. The body you took the body from. It's poison, I tell you, it's poison. According to Bobby Anderson, H.B. Warner slapped him for real in this scene, reducing him to tears. But he hugged him after the scene had finished shooting. Oh. Don't hurt my sewer again! Oh, no, Don't hurt no, my no. sewer again! Oh, God. Oh, Mr. Gower, I would never tell anyone. I know you're feeling. I would have felt so. Hope to die, I would. Composer Dmitry Tjomkin had written two pieces of music entitled Death Telegram and Gower's Deliverance for the drugstore scenes. But in the editing room, Capra elected to go with no music for them. Those changes, along with others, eventually led to a falling out between Tjomkin and Capra. Tjomkin had worked on a lot of Capra's previous films and was saddened that Capra decided to have the music paired or toned down moved or cut entirely. He felt as though his work was being seen as a mere suggestion. And in his autobiography, Please Don't Hate Me, he said of the incident, it was an all-round scissors job. In the original version of the script, the scene where George visits his father at work for advice is slightly different and explains a little bit more about the Bailey family. After George tells off Mr. Potter and closes the door, he considers asking Uncle Billy about the drugstore dilemma. Billy is talking on the phone to the bank examiner and lights his cigar, throwing a match into the wastebasket. This scene explains that Tilly, short for Matilda, and Eustace are both his cousins. And Tilly is on the phone with her friend Martha and says, Potter's here, the bank examiner's coming, it's a day of judgement. 
As George is about to interrupt Tilly on the phone, Billy cries for help and Tilly runs in and puts the fire out with a pot of coffee. George decides he's probably better off dealing with the situation by himself. film now jumps forward to the summer of 1928. George has grown up into adulthood and as a young man he finally has his chance to get out of tiny Bedford Falls before entering college. He's about to leave for Europe on an exotic trip aboard an ocean freighter to see the world. He's in a local luggage and bag store purchasing a suitcase. With his hands outstretched the moving image of George is suddenly stopped on the screen by the angels as they inspect and comment upon it. stop it for? I want you to take a good look at that face. Who is it? George Bailey. Oh, you mean the kid that had his ears slapped back by the druggist? That's the kid. Ah, it's a good face. I like it. I like George Bailey. Tell me, did he ever tell anyone about the pills? Not a soul. Did he ever marry the girl? Did he ever go exploring? Well, wait and see. We now get to meet some of the other inhabitants of Bedford Falls. Some we've already seen previously as children, others for the first time. Baghdad, Samarkand, Creek Big I see a flying carpet, huh? Yeah, I don't suppose you'd like this old second-hand job, would you? Ah, you're talking. Gee whiz, I could use that as a raft in case the boat sunk. How much does this cost? No charge. That's my trick here, George. Sound like you said no charge. That's right. What's my name doing on it? Here? A little present from old man Gawa. Came down and picked it out himself. He did? What do you know about that? My old boss. Isn't that nice? What boat are you sailing on? Well, I'm working across on a cattle boat. A cattle boat? Okay, I like cars. There's Ernie, the taxi driver played by Frank Phelan, and Hollywood legend Ward Bond as Bert the Cop. Hey, Incidentally, notice the names. Bert and Ernie. Hi, Ernie. Hi, George. Hi, Bert. George. Hey, hey, I, I'm a rich tourist today. How about driving me home in style, huh? Right, hop yes, in, Your sir. Highness. Hop in. And for the carriage trade, I put on my hat. It's been rumoured over the years that Bert and Ernie, created by Jim Henson for the kids' TV show Sesame Street, were named after these two characters. There has, however, been no official confirmation of this. In fact, most sources from the Henson Company claim that it's merely a coincidence. And then we meet Violet, all grown up. Good afternoon, Mr. Bailey. Hello, Violet. Hey, you look good. That's some dress you got on there. What? This old thing? Well, I only wear it when I don't care how I look. The adult Violet, played perfectly by Gloria Graham, the queen of the film noir, equally known for her turbulent private life and plastic surgery as well as her flawless acting ability. <gasps> how would you like to... Yes. Wanna come along, Bert? We'll show you the town. No, thanks. I uh, gotta go home and see what the wife's doing. Family man. Some say the highlight of her career was probably as Debbie in Fritz Lang's 1953 crime thriller The Big Heat, where she portrayed superbly the teasing, braying gangster's mole out to amuse everyone around her. But in It's a Wonderful Life, as we will find out shortly, she gives two performances, but both as the same character, Violet. 
In this movie, we get man-hungry, flirty Violet, seen later doing the Charleston with older men at a dance. But later, we get a glimpse of Violet as the wrecked, angry whore being thrown into the back of a police van, screaming that she knows important people. One of the best characters in the whole movie, portrayed by one of Hollywood's finest. George spends his last night, the evening of Brother Harry's high school graduation, with his parents for his last meal at the Bailey home. Oh, never mind. George, Harry, come down to dinner this minute. Everything's getting cold, and you know how long we've been waiting for it. Behind his father on the wall are George's framed butterfly collection. Oh, Mom, I'm chairman of the his father tells him that Potter, on the board of directors, continues to harass them. George has spent four years since his high school graduation working for his father at the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan Association. Boys and girls and music. Why do they need gin? Well, I act like that when I graduate from high school. Pretty much. George has it all figured out. His younger brother Harry, here played by Todd Carnes, is to take his place at the Bailey Company for four years while he goes off to college. Harry will take my job in the building alone, work there for four years, and then he'll go. Pretty young for that job. Well, no younger than I was. Well, you were born older, George. Mr Bailey sounds out his born older son, George, about what he wants to do in his future. I suppose you've decided what you want to do when you get out of college. Oh, well, you know what I want. George boasts about his plans. Design new buildings, plan modern cities. All that stuff I've been talking Still about. after that first million before you're 30, huh? No, I'll sell half that in cash. <laughs> Mr Bailey also asked about his son's feelings about taking over the building and loan. You wouldn't consider coming back to the building and loan, would you? Exuberant about leaving Bedford Falls and travelling in his future, George declines his father's offer to return back home after college to take over the business. Well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. His father defends the importance of their business, sacrificing his entire life to altruistically help depositors in his bank and his family. I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. George doesn't wish to demean his father's work, but explains that he wants to get away and achieve financial and worldly success. Spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and like the pipe, I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. You know, George, I feel that in a small way we are doing something important. 
satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof, walls, and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Bob. I, I know that. I, I, I wish I felt that uh, I, I've been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Yes, yes. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. Boy, did you hear that, Annie? And so, to the high school dance. Yeehaw. George's last night, or so he thinks, in crummy old Bedford Falls. His younger brother Harry's graduation party and George is met by old childhood friends including Sam Hehaw Wainwright and Marty Hatch, the brother of Mary, who we last saw as a small child at Old Man Gower's drugstore. Hey, uh, i got to make some dough first. Well, you better make it fast. We need great ends like you. Mary, now 18 years old and played here by Donna Reed, catches George's eye as she stands listening to the inane ramblings of Freddie Switzer. Remember my kid sister, Mary. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to want you, Marty. Mary, yeah. <laughs> Dance with her, will you? Oh, me? Oh, I feel funny enough already with all these kids. Oh, come on, be a sport. Just dance with her one time and you'll give her the thrill of her life. Mary turns away, snubbing Freddie, and starts to dance with George. The next thing I knew, some guy came up and tripped me. That's the reason why I came in fourth. If it hadn't have been for that, that race had been a cinch. I tried to find out who it was later, but I couldn't find out. Nobody would ever tell you who, whoever, whoever it was because they'd be scared. They know what you kind of a guy George. I am. This is Mary. Well, I'll be seeing you. Well, well, well. Now, to get back to my story, see? Hey, this is my dance. Oh, why don't you stop annoying people? Well, I'm sorry. Hey! And that is how the courtship of George and Mary begins. Well, hello. Hello. You look at me as if you didn't know me. Well, I don't. You pass me on the street almost every day. Me? Ah, mm-hmm. oh, that was a little girl named Mary Hatch. That wasn't you. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, the big Charleston contest. At the party, they enter a Charleston dance contest. Most unbeknownst to them, the jealous rival Freddy fiendishly plots his revenge. Remain on the floor. Let's go! With the turn of the key and the push of a button, the gym dance floor begins to open up, revealing a swimming pool underneath. Very good at that. When the floor separates beneath them, they're so carried away with their frantic Charleston dancing that they don't notice. They plunge backwards into the pool, soon joined by everyone in the water, including the principal. George and Mary walk home together, returning from the high school dance after falling in the pool and soaking their party clothes. Buffalo girls, can't you come up tonight? Can't you come up tonight? Can't you come up tonight? Buffalo girls, can't you come up tonight? Dance by the light of the moon. 
both wearing a hastily thrown together weird assortment of borrowed clothes, George, a number three football jersey, and Mary, a long, loose-fitting bathrobe. I had to knock down three people to get this stuff we're wearing here. Let me, let me hold that old wet dress of yours. Do I look as funny as you do? I guess I'm not quite the football type. I, you, you look wonderful. You know, if it wasn't me talking, I'd say you were the prettiest girl in town. Well, why don't you say it? Well, I don't know. Maybe I will say it. How old are you, anyway? Eighteen. Eighteen? Well, it was only last year you were seventeen. Too young or too old? Oh, no, no. Just right. Your age fits you. On their way home while strolling along the street, they pause in front of the old deserted Granville house. And the gawky George accidentally steps on her bathrobe belt, the pretended train of her dress. She stops so that they can pretend a chivalrous encounter in a dramatic game. Pox upon me for a clumsy lout. Your, uh, your caboose, me lady. As a courtly lady, she extends her hand for a kiss from a courtier. He approaches closer to her, intending to give her a real kiss, but she coyly and slowly turns away from him, walking away and continuing to sing Buffalo Girls. Okay, then I'll throw a rock at the old Granville house. Oh, no, don't. I, I love that old house. No, you see, you may... George threatens to hurl a rock through one of the windows of the Granville house. Oh, no, George, don't. He wants to make a wish, which will only come true if he breaks a window. Mary wishes he wouldn't and confesses that she'd like to live in that old house. A prophetic wish. What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hatful. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Mary interrupts George by picking up a rock, which at first goes unnoticed by self-centered George, and silently makes a wish of her own. Her wish, as we will learn later, is to live with George someday in the Granville house. Hey, that's pretty good. Following George's example, she throws it through another window. And George curiously asks, What'd you wish, Mary? And while all this is going on, the pair are being watched by a neighbour, played by Dick Elliot, who is sitting out on his porch listening to their nonsense. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it. And it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes! Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? How's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? Want me to kiss her, huh? Oh, use is wasted on the wrong people. Hey. Hey, hold on. Hey, mister, come on back out here. I'll show you some kissing that'll put hair back on your head. What are you... And then George inadvertently steps on Mary's bathrobe once again, and she accidentally loses it. She jumps into the hydrangea bushes to hide. Mary? 
Aroused by her predicament, he hesitates to throw her robe to her and teases her in a good-natured way, calling it a very interesting situation. Okay, I give up. Where are you? Over here. In the hydrangea bushes. <laughs> there you are. Catch. Wait a minute. What am I doing? Mary begs for her robe back as he circles the bush with a bathrobe in his hands. This is a very interesting situation. Please give me my robe. Hmm. Man doesn't get in a situation like this every day. I'd like to have my robe. Not in Bedford Falls, anyway. Ouch! Oh! Gesundheit. George this requires Faye. a little thought here. Give me my robe. I've read about things like this, but I never... Shame on you. I'm going to tell your mother on you. Well, my mother's way up in the corner there. I'll call the police. Well, they're way downtown. They'd be on my side, too. Oh, then, then I'm going to scream. Maybe I could sell tickets. No. George's imaginative contemplation of possibilities is interrupted when a car roars up the street with Harry and Uncle Billy. I'll make a deal with you, Mary. He abruptly leaves after receiving the tragic news that his father has had a stroke. George! Come on home, quick. Your father's had a stroke. Mary, Mary, I'm sorry, I've got to go. The beautiful harmony of their mutual attraction is shattered. The last shot of the scene is a long, sustained close-up of Mary, with a mixed expression of sadness, concern and disappointment, as she watches the car drive off. And so begins the first in a series of knockbacks that will plague George for the rest of his life. With the death of his father, his dreams of travelling across Europe for the summer before college are scuppered, and he has to stay in Bedford Falls to handle his father's business affairs. In a meeting of the board of the Bailey Building and Loan Company that gathers to vote on its future and to choose a successor to Peter Bailey, George listens to Mr Potter, who happens to be one of the board members, present a motion to dissolve the Building and Loan Association in a bold-faced attempt to shut it down. I claim this institution is not necessary to this town. Therefore, Mr Chairman, I make a motion to dissolve this institution and turn its assets and liabilities over to the receiver. Buddy, you dirty contemptible! I'll read this next time. George, did you hear what happened? It's too soon after Peter Bailey's death to talk about chloroforming the building and loan. Peter Bailey died three months ago. I second Mr Potter's motion. Very well. In that case, I'll ask the two executive officers to withdraw. But before you go... I'm sure the whole board wishes to express its deep sorrow at the passing of Peter Bailey. Thank you. It was his faith and devotion that are responsible for this organization. I'll go further than that. I'll say that to the public, Peter Bailey was the building in law. Oh, that's fine, Potter, coming from you, considering that you probably drove him to his grave. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him, God rest his soul. He was a man of high ideals so-called. But ideals without common sense can ruin this town. <laughs> now, you take this loan here to Ernie Bishop. You know, that fellow that sits around all day on his brains in his taxi, you know. I happen to know the bank turned down this loan. But he comes here and we're building him a house worth $5,000. Why? Well, I handled that, Mr. Potter. You have all the papers there, his salary, insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. Friend of yours? Yes, sir. Uh, you see, if you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. 
What is that, Geddes? A discontented... George delivers an inspired address in defence of his father's character, fighting selfishness and deceitfulness with honesty and decency. He speaks for the hard-working people of the town and the way his father made them all better citizens and customers. I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know, but... Neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Well, here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they... What did you say just a minute ago? They, George has no alternative than to commit to keeping alive his father's company. Wait! Otherwise, Bailey Brothers' building and loan would fall completely under the ownership of the greedy and unscrupulous Mr. Potter, making him the only source in town for borrowing money. George leaves the room while the board takes a vote. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're, the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. Sentimental hogwash. I want my motion acted Boy, oh boy, that was telling George, oh boy, you shut his big mouth. You should have heard him. What happened? We heard a lot of yelling. Well, he go. Here it is. Help wanted. Female. You still want me to hang around, George? Yeah, I'll be right down. Huh? Yeah, hey, you miss your train. You're a week late for school already. Go on. What's going on? Oh, never mind. Don't worry about that. They're putting us out of business. So what? I can get another job. I'm only 55. 56. Go on, go on. Hey, look, they vote not to sell out to Potter, but to keep the Bailey Building and Loan Company under one condition. If George is kept in charge as executive secretary to succeed his father. They got one condition, huh? Only one condition. What's that? When they also suggest that absent-minded Uncle Billy run the company, quite frankly an unworkable alternative, George realises his opportunities to go to college and study architecture are closing down, crying... I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. Uncle Billy! And in a bold act of self-sacrifice, he agrees to remain in Bedford Falls to operate the firm, inherit the responsibilities of running the loan company. That's right. Not only that, but he gave his school money to his brother Harry and sent him to college. Harry became a football star. Made second... And instead, send his younger brother Harry to college using his own college savings. Over the next four years, George manages the company while Harry attends college in his place. 
When Harry graduates from college in 1932, the plan is for him to return to Bedford Falls and run the family business. At the train station, George waits with Uncle Billy for his brother to return for the last time. In his hand, travel brochures to Venezuela and the Yukon. At last, he can finally be replaced at the company by his brother and turn over the management to Harry, finally leaving Bedford Falls. The train pulls into the station and out leaps Harry. With him, unknown to George and Uncle Billy, Harry's new bride, Ruth, played by Virginia Patton. And as the conversation progresses, it dawns on George that Harry's future doesn't actually lie with Bailey Building and Loan. George is destined to stay in Bedford Falls. And as Harry returns to the train to collect his luggage, George realises that once again, all his hopes and dreams have been shattered. But George, being George, keeps the bitterness and discouragement to himself. At the Bailey house that evening, there is a family party celebrating the return of Harry and his marriage to Ruth. After a family photo at the front of the house, George and a very drunk Uncle Billy stay outside to chat. What'd you say? Huh? Oh, maybe I better go home. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? Oh, thank you, George. This is mine. The metal one. Oh, thank you, George. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Now, look. If you point me in the right direction, would you do that, George? Right oh. During filming of this particular scene, huh? as George points Billy in the right direction home, well, the camera focuses on George smiling at his uncle staggering away. I'm all right. I'm all right. oh, what actually happened is that the actor, Thomas Mitchell, fell into some equipment left of camera and actually very nearly fell over. The crashing noise, however, was tweaked a little in post-production to make it a little louder. George looks back through the porch screen door and noticing his mother, Harry and Ruth getting on like a house on fire. Lighting a cigarette, he hears the distant sound of a departing train whistle and looks up abruptly. One of the three most exciting sounds in the world. A sound that symbolises his hopes and dreams fading away forever. George reaches into his coat pocket and throws away his travel brochures in disgust. George is joined by his mother, played by Beulah Bondi. Beulah Bondi, another famous face from pre-war Hollywood, was noted for the fact that as well as It's a Wonderful Life, she would also play Jimmy Stewart's mother in three other movies. Of Human Hearts, Vivacious Lady and Mr Smith goes to Washington. She would continue to act well into her 80s, with her final on-screen appearance being that of Martha Corrine in The Waltons in 1976. Stop that grunting. Hmm? Can you give me one good reason why you shouldn't call on Mary? Sure, Sam Wainwright. Hmm? Yeah, Sam's crazy about Mary. Well, she's not crazy about him. Well, how do you know? Now, what, what, she discuss it with him? No. Well, then how do you know? Well, I've got eyes, haven't I? She lights up like a firefly whenever you're around. Oh. Besides, Sam Wainwright's away in New York, and you're here in Bedford Falls. And all's fair in love and war. Well, I don't know about war. 
Mother of mine, I can see right through you, right to your back collar, but trying to get rid of me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, here's your hat. What's your hurry? All right, mother old building and loan pal. I think I'll go out and find a girl and do a little passionate necking. Now, if you'll just point me in the right direction. This direction. George heads downtown, not entirely sure what he wants to do. Here, he bumps into Violet, surrounded by admirers. Excuse me. Oh, wait a minute. I think I got a date. But uh, stick around, fellas. Just... Violet, here played by Gloria Graham, would go on to find further fame in several famous film noirs, including Crossfire, The Bad and the Beautiful, Sudden Fear, Human Desire, and of course, The Big Heat. Where are you going? The Big Heat, the film in which Lee Marvin throws a scalding hot pot of coffee into her face. Don't you ever get tired of She would go on to appear in the movie version of Rogers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma, yeah. but sadly, never really achieved the fame she truly deserved. Your game, Vi, let's make a night of it. Oh, I love it, Georgie. What do we do? Let's go out in the fields and take off our shoes and walk through the grass. Huh? Then we can go up to the falls. It's beautiful up there in the moonlight. And there's a green pool up there, and we, we can uh, swim in it. Then we can climb Mount Bedford and smell the pines and watch the sunrise against the peaks, and we'll stay up there the whole night, and everybody will be talking. There'll be a terrific scam. Georgie, what about have you it? gone crazy? Why, walk in the grass in my bare feet? <laughs> We now come to one of the most romantic and emotionally charged scenes in the entire movie. As George wanders through town, he finds himself intentionally, or maybe unintentionally, outside Mary's house. Quickly, Mary rushes downstairs, made up to the nines having been pre-warned by George's mother of his possible arrival. She quickly props up and displays a hand-stitched needlepoint portrait with the caption, George Lasso's the Moon. Have you made up your mind? The picture itself, a cartoon figure throwing a cowboy's lasso around the moon and pulling it towards the earth. Your mother just phoned and said you were on your way over to pay me a visit. My mother just called you? Well, how'd she know? Didn't you tell her? I didn't tell anybody. I just went for a walk. I happened to be passing by here. What, what are you... Uh... Went for a walk, that's all. She winds up the gramophone and plays a recording of Buffalo Girls before opening the door. Well, are you coming in or aren't you? Well, I'll come in for a minute. But I... I... I didn't tell anybody I was coming over here, you know. When'd you get back? Tuesday. Let's get that dress. Do you like it? All right. I thought you would go back to New York like Sam and Angie and the rest of them. Oh, oh I worked there a couple of vacations, but I don't know. I guess I was homesick. Homesick? For Bedford Falls? Yes. My family and... 
Oh, everything. Would you like to sit down? All right, for a minute. I, I still can't understand it, though. You know, I didn't tell anybody I was coming here. Would you rather leave? No, I don't want to. With a surly, rude, and belligerent attitude, he notices her portrait in the parlour and calls it. Some joke, huh? Well, see, it still smells like pine needles around here. Thank you. Noticing that he is discontented about everything, Mary attempts to suggest a topic of conversation by bringing up an exploratory question on his feelings about marriage. Well, I... Nice about your brother Harry and Ruth, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Don't you like her? Well, of course I like her. She's a peach. Oh, just marriage in general you're not enthusiastic about. No, no, marriage is all right for Harry and Marty and Sam. Mary's mother, who's been eavesdropping throughout the entire affair, interrupts this painful and strained conversation. George Bailey? What's he want? I don't know. What do you want? Me? Not a thing. I, I just came in to get warm. He's making violent love to me, Mother. You tell him to go right back home. And don't you leave the house either. Sam Wainwright promised to call you from New York tonight. What's your mother mean? You know, I, I didn't come here to... What did you come here for, then? I don't know. You tell me. You're supposed to be the one that has all the answers. You tell me. Why don't you go home? That's where I'm going. I don't know why I came here in the first place. Good night. George leaves the house, and Mary smashes the record of Buffalo Girls, her dreams shattered. Whatever were you doing, it's pretty here. Come out tonight, catch, come out tonight. Buffalo Girls, catch, come out tonight. Mary... The scene then develops into one of the most memorable parts of the movie. Hello? Forgot my hat. Hee-haw. Hello, Sam. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Gee, it's good to hear your voice again. Oh, well, that's awfully sweet of you, Sam. There's an old friend of yours here, George Bailey. You mean old Mossback George? <laughs> yes, old Mossback George. Well, just a minute. I'll call him George. He doesn't want to speak to George, you idiot. He does so. He asked for him. George. George, Sam wants to... As George and Mary share the same earpiece extension, listening and talking on the same phone, the two of them cannot help but being squeezed so close together. Hey, a fine pal you are. What are you trying to do, steal my girl? Well, what, what do you mean? Nobody's trying to steal anybody's girl. Here, here, here here's Mary. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to talk to here, you. Here, you... But it's only attention we I am not. We can both hear. Come here. We're, we're listening, Sam. In this scene, George is very conscious of Mary being so close to him and tries to resist his close proximity to her. But he is undoubtedly romantically attracted, and there is no way now that he couldn't deny that he loves her. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, man, yeah. Well, Rochester? Well, why Rochester? Well, why not? Can you think of anything better? Well, I don't know. Just why not right here? 
You remember that uh, that old tool and machinery works? Well, you tell your father you can get that for a song and all the labor he wants, too. Half the town was thrown out of work when they closed down. Money, yeah. Well, a little. Well, now listen. I want you to put every cent you've got into our stock, do you hear? And George, I may have a job for you. That is, unless you're still married to that broken down building and loan. <laughs> but if George were to admit his love for Mary, well, then that would mean he'd have to stay in Bedford Falls, the crummy old town where he's been forced to stay against his will and give up all of his dreams. I'm here. Uh, will you tell that guy I'm giving him the chance of a lifetime? Mary looks up at George. And with her lips almost touching his, she whispers, He says it's the chance of a lifetime. The phone is dropped to the floor, and the audience, expecting George to grab Mary and kiss her, see him hold her fiercely by the shoulders and start to shake her. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. And with that telephone conversation... George is destined to remain in Bedford Falls after all. First Harry, now George. Annie, we're just too old. We now cut to George and Mary's wedding day. The happy couple are about to embark on the honeymoon trip of a lifetime and there to take them to the train station. Who else but George's good friend, Ernie, the taxi driver. There's somebody driving this cab. Bert, the cop sent this over. He said to float away to Happy Land on the bubbles. Oh, look at oh, this old Bert. By the way, uh, where are you two going on this here now, honeymoon? Where are we going? Look at this. There's the kitty, Ernie. Here, come on. Count her, Mary. Oh, I feel like a bootlegger's wife. Look. You know what we're going to do? We're going to shoot the works. A whole week in New York, a whole week in Bermuda, the highest hotels, the oldest champagne, the richest caviar, the hottest music, and the prettiest wife. Oh. Well, that does it. Then what? Then what, honey? After that, who cares? Oh, that doesn't. Come here. Come here. Come here. <laughs> Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. Hey, Amy, you got any money in the bank? You better hurry. George, let's not stop. Let's go. Come out there. Mary pleads with George not to interrupt their trip, but once again we soon find that George is unable to leave the town in a time of crisis. George gets out of the taxi and hurries over to the building and loan, leaving Mary in the cab. Well, hello everybody, Miss Thompson, how are you? Well, Ali, what's the matter here? Can't you get in? The crisis has obviously been provoked by Potter. The banker called in their loan and Billy, in a panic, closed the loan company. What is this, Uncle Billy? A holiday? George. Come on in, everybody. That's right. Just come on in. God damn it. Now look, why don't you all sit down? Here, there are a lot of seats over there. 
It's soon apparent they have very little cash on hand to distribute to all the townsfolk who demand to withdraw their money immediately. Why did you call? I just did, but they said you left. This is a pickle, George. This is a pickle. All right, now what happened? How did it start? Well, how does a thing like this ever start? All I know is the bank called our loan. When? About an hour ago, I handled all, all our cash. All of it? Every cent of it, and still was less than we owed. Holy mackerel! And then I got scared, George. Meanwhile, Potter has already seized control of the bank during the crisis and calls George to disingenuously help him. Oh, crazy. Yeah, hello? George, it's Potter. Hello? George, there is a rumour around town that you've closed your doors. Is that true? Oh, well, I'm very glad to hear that. George, are you all right? Do you need any police? Police? What for? Well, mobs get pretty ugly sometimes, you know. George... I am going all out to help in this crisis. I have just guaranteed the bank sufficient funds to meet their needs. They will close up for a week and then reopen. Just took over the bank. I may lose a fortune, but I am willing to guarantee your people too. Just tell them to bring their shares over here and I will pay 50 cents on the dollar. Boy, you never miss a trick, do you, Potter? Or you're going to miss this one. If you close your doors before 6 p.m., you will never reopen. Amidst all the pressure and confusion, George looks over to the portrait of his father and the motto on the wall. George, was it a nice wedding? Gosh, I wanted to be there. All that you can take with you is which you've given away. You can take this one off now. In desperation, George tries to appeal to the crowd to allay their fears. Now, just remember that this thing isn't as black as it appeared. I have some news for you, folks. I was just talking to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. But, George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie, I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. And I'll take mine now. No, but you're, you're... You're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and, and a hundred others. Now, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? I got $242 in here, and $242 isn't going to break anybody. Okay, Tom. All right. Here you are. You sign this. You get your money in 60 days. For 60 days? Well, now, that's what you agreed to when you bought your shares. Tom! Tom! Did you get your money? No. Well, I did. Old man Potter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you got. 50 cents? Yes, cash. Well, what do you say? No, Tom, you have to stick to your original agreement. Now, give us 60 days on this. Okay, thing. Randall. Are you going to Potter's? Better to get half than nothing. I Tom! I need Tom! Tom. 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 Randall, now, Randall, wait. Now, wait. Now, listen. Now, listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank, he's got the bus line, he's got the department stores, and now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple, because we're cutting in on his business, that's why. And because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken-down shack? 
Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. He's picking up Mary, having now appeared from the taxi, holds up the money that belongs to them, offering their $2,000 in honeymoon money to bolster the dwindling assets and satisfy the depositors, hopefully to tide them over until the bank reopens in a week's time. I can't keep my kids on faith! I've got to have How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? And once again, George sacrifices and throws away his last chance to leave Bedford Falls. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got $300 here, George. All right, now, Ed, what will it take until the bank opens? What, what do you need? Well, I suppose... The townspeople, although still fearful, trust in George's honesty and agree to withdraw only what they need to last the week. And I'll sign the paper. You don't have to sign anything. I know you. You pay when you can. That's okay. All right, Miss Davis. Could I have seventeen fifty? The actress here is Ellen Corby, probably best known 30 years later as Grandma Walton. Two, one, bingo! We made it, close the door, you We made it, look, look, we're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. Well, look. And finally, at the end of the day, when the building and loan closes at 6pm, and they're left with only two dollars, George toasts the successful halt on the bank run. Important Samoans here. We'll save and proceed. A yeah. toast. A toast. A toast to Mama Dollar and to Papa Dollar. And if you want to keep this old building alone in business, you better have a family real quick. I wish they were rabbits. I wish they were too. George and Uncle Billy, cousin Eustace, played by Charles Williams, and cousin Tilly, played by Mary Treen, joyfully prance around the room celebrating the survival of the loan company. The raven, featured hopping about the office in this scene, was called Jimmy and was a wildly prolific avian actor. Frank Capra first used him in his 1938 movie You Can't Take It With You and cast him in every picture he made subsequently. James Stewart apparently was a big fan of his feathered namesake. He would remark during filming of It's a Wonderful Life that when the crew called out Jimmy, they would both answer, calling the bird the smartest actor on the set. 320 Sycamore, well what, whose home's that? The Waldorf Hotel, huh? By now, George has completely forgotten that it's his wedding day and he should have been off on his honeymoon travels with his new bride. 320 Sycamore, the address of the old abandoned and dilapidated Granville Place where they both thrown rocks at windows and made their wishes. Outside in the rain, we see Bert sorting through travel posters to provide decor and atmosphere for their honeymoon, which must now be celebrated in the town. Hey, this is the company's posters, and the company won't like this. How would you like to get a ticket next week? Is there any romance in you? Sure, I had it, but I got rid of it. Liver pills. Who wants to see liver pills on your honeymoon? We want us romantic places, beautiful places, places George wants to go. Hey, Bert, here he comes. Come on, we got to get this up. He's coming. Who? The room, idiot! This is their honeymoon! Come on, get that ladder! What are they, ducks? Get that ladder! Alright, alright! Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up! I'm hurrying! 
evening, sir. Entree, monsieur. Entree. George is greeted at the door, complete with a sign saying bridal suite, and ushered in. Discovering that Mary has improvised an imaginative honeymoon composed of romantic candlelit dinner in a house with a leaky ceiling and crumbling plaster. The outside of the windows have been plastered with travel posters to erase the reality that their trip to Bermuda was cancelled. Window posters advertise sunny Florida and Hawaii, along with a South Seas poster hanging inside on the wall. Standing in front of the beautifully set dining table, with a chicken rotating on a primitive spit in the fireplace, which is attached to a rotating gramophone playing Hawaiian music, Mary greets him sweetly. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. Mary, where did you... While they kiss, they're serenaded outdoors by Ernie and Bert. I love you Walt Bond, who plays Bert the Cop, was yet another of those actors who's appeared in more movies than you'd possibly realise. In a career spanning over 30 years, he made a staggering 200-plus movie appearances, 23 of which starred John Wayne. He had a very close working relationship with both Frank Capra and John Ford, appearing in many of their movies, and he holds the distinction of appearing in 13 movies that were nominated for Best Picture Oscars, more than any other actor. Frank Phelan, here playing Ernie, the taxi driver, also appeared in over 200 movies. From Lauren Hardy Pictures to Walt Disney Movies, he is however possibly also remembered for his portrayal of Bim, the cynical male nurse at Bellevue's alcoholic ward in 1945's The Lost Weekend. And so we start to move forward in time, and we see Bailey Park, a brand new housing estate where four room houses have been constructed for immigrant families, and we meet the Martini family. But not everyone is pleased with George's success. We cut to the bank where Potter is having a conversation oh, with his Potter, lawyer. It's no skin off my nose. I'm just your little rent collector. But you can't laugh off this Bailey Park anymore. Look at it. I'll tell the congressman to wait. Go on. Fifteen years ago, a half a dozen houses stuck here and there. There's the old cemetery, squirrels, buttercups, daisies. I used to hunt rabbits there myself. 
Look at it today. Dozens of the prettiest little homes you ever saw. 90% owned by suckers who used to pay rent to you. Your potter's field, my dear Mr. Employer, is becoming just that. And are the local yokels making with those David and Goliath wisecracks? No, oh, they are, are they? Even though they know the Baileys never made a dime out of it. You know very well why. The Baileys were all chumps. Every one of these homes is worth twice what it cost the building and loan to build. If I were you, Mr. Potter... Oh, you are not me. As I say, it's no skin off my nose. But one of these days, this bright young man's going to be asking George Bailey for a job. Bailey family's been a boil on my neck long enough. Come in here. George's generosity towards the local townspeople makes prospects look dim and cash flow is low. But he's the best light man in town. We just in town to take a look at the new factory and then we're going to drive on down to Florida. Oh, why don't you have your friends join us? Why, sure. Hey, why don't you kids drive down with us, huh? In a contrasting scene, George compares his life to that of his friend Sam Wainwright, a successful plastic business entrepreneur who stops in town in his fancy car on his way to a sunny Florida vacation with his wife. Envious of Sam's success, his wealth, glamour and travel. Come on, George, see you in the funny paper. Come on, Mary. Thanks for dropping around. George pauses with Mary as Sam drives away, jams his hands in his pocket and then kicks shut the door of his own old car. Unbelievably, George is summoned into Potter's office and is congratulated for beating him. Quite a cigar, Mr Potter. You like it? I'll send you a box. Well, I, uh, I suppose I'll find out sooner or later, but just what exactly do you want to see me about? <laughs> oh, George, now that's just what I like so much about you. <clears throat> George, I am an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. You know just as well as I do that I run practically everything in this town, but the Bailey building alone. You know also that for a number of years I've been trying to get control of it, or kill it, but I haven't been able to do it. You have been stopping me. In fact, you have beaten me, George. And as anyone in this county can tell you, that takes some doing. Now, take during the Depression, for instance. You and I were the only ones that kept our heads. You saved the building alone. I saved all the rest. Yes, well, most people say you stole all the rest. The envious ones say that, George. The suckers. Now, I have stated my side very frankly. Now, let's look at your side. <laughs> Young man, 27, 28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. 45. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, ten, if you skimp. A child or two comes along and you won't even be able to save the ten. Now, if this young man at 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not a common, ordinary yokel. He is an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. 
A young man who's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man, the smartest one in the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. Yes, sir, trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Do I paint a correct picture? Or do I exaggerate? Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? My point is I want to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year? You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town? Buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know, th this is me. You remember me? George Bailey. George Bailey. George Bailey, whose ship has just come in. Provided he has enough brains to climb aboard. Mackerel. Well, how about the building and loan? Oh, confounded man, are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three-year contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal or isn't it? Well, Mr. Potter, I, I, I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I, I just, uh, I, I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over. Sure, sure, sure. You go on home and talk about it to your wife. I'd like to do that. Yeah, then in the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. He rises to shake Potter's hand and is almost ready to accept before suddenly he comes to his senses. He can't do business with Potter. He looks down at his hand, draws it away, stares at it, and then slowly wipes it off on his clothing. George categorically refuses the offer. No, 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 wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now, and the answer's no, no! Doggone it! You, you sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the... In the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You... And that goes for you, too. And it goes for you, too! You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town? George's words come back to haunt him in his memory as he enters his bedroom where Mary's sleeping. I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. He glances at Mary's needlepoint creation that hangs on the wall of the bedroom, and is once again flooded with intense memories of his failed imaginative bravado. You want the moon? You do, just say the word. I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull her down for you. Buffalo gal, won't you come out tonight? Won't you come out tonight? Won't you come out tonight? 
Buffalo girl, won't you come out tonight? Shameful and full of self-reproach, he feels dismayed that he's never been able to take Mary travelling for adventure and romance like he'd always promised. He'd wanted to leave his small hometown and see the world, but instead he presides over his family-owned building and loan, always struggling with his nose to the grindstone and never seeming to get ahead. To keep from being an old maid. And I married Sam Wainwright and anybody else in town. I didn't want to marry anybody else in town. I want my baby to look like you. I didn't even have a honeymoon. I promised you. You what? My baby. Mary, you, you on the nest? George Bailey Lasso Stork. Lasso's a stork? What do you... You mean... You, 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 what, what, do you, what is it, a boy or a girl? Mm-hmm. And in an effort to get Clarence Angel second class up to date, we see a montage of events that occur over the next few years in Bedford Falls. A devoted wife and mother, Mary first has a baby boy and then a girl. She cares for the children and spends her days making the Granville house into a home, painting and wallpapering the walls. George continues his daily struggle to keep the building alone going, often returning home late after work. In the first of three instances in the film, we see George here grab the railing post ball at the bottom of the stairs, it comes off in his hands and he replaces it back in its hole. And so, on to the final act of the movie. The act that forever has meant that It's a Wonderful Life will always be considered a Christmas movie. Incidentally, Frank Capra didn't think of it as a U-tied tale at all. Capra always thought of the film in broader terms. Speaking to the Wall Street Journal in 1984, the director said, I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. At last, it's Christmas in Bedford Falls. Christmas Eve 1945, to be precise. We discover that George's brother Harry has been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor by the President of the White House. Harry's story is boldly displayed on the front page of the Bedford Falls newspaper. President decorates Harry Bailey. That morning from Washington, Harry phones George in his office. Harry's family and friends in Bedford Falls plan for a homecoming to celebrate his native son fame. Why? 
Uncle Billy, uh, Uncle Billy, oh. come in here. Oh, he stopped at the bank first. Oh, uh, he's not here right now, Harry. But look, now George, tell, George, tell me about it. George, what? George. Why? That, that man is here again. What man? At, at the bank. Oh, oh, uh, 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 Harry, talk to Hughes for a minute, will you? I'll be right back. Wow. Harry. Oh, good morning, sir. Carter, bank examiner. Mr. Carter, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Ah, uh, we're all excited around here. My brother just got the Congressional Medal of Honor. The president just decorated. Yeah, well, I guess they do those things. Well, I trust you had a good year. Good year? Ah, uh, well, between you and me, Mr. Carter, we're broke. Yeah, very funny. <clears throat> well, uh, well, I'll come right in here, Mr. Carter. Although I shouldn't wonder when you okay reverse charges on personal long-distance calls. George, shall we hang up? No, no, he wants to talk to Uncle Billy. You just hold on. Now, if you'll cooperate, I'd like to finish with you by tonight. I want to spend Christmas in Elmira with my family. Ah, uh, don't blame me at all, Mr. Carter. Just step right in here. We'll fix you up. December 24th. We then see George's partner, Uncle Billy. He's in the bank and about to deposit $8,000 in building and loan funds. Unfortunately, while gloating to Potter about Harry's bravery in the war, he absent-mindedly and unknowingly wraps the money in the newspaper he's holding and passes it to Potter. Congressional Medal. That couldn't be one of the Bailey boys. You just can't keep those Baileys down. Now can you, Mr. Potter? How does Slacker George feel about that? Very jealous, very jealous. He only lost three buttons off his vest. Of course, Slacker George would have gotten two of these medals if he had gone. Bad ear. Yes. After all, Potter, some people like George had to stay at home. Not every heel was in Germany and Japan. <laughs> uh, good morning, Mr. Bailey. Good morning, Horace. Well, I guess you forgot something. Huh? You forgot something. What? Well, aren't you going to make a deposit? Oh, sure, sure I am. Well, then it's usually customary to bring the money with you. In his office, Potter discovers the money and keeps it for himself. Obsessed with the idea of owning the town and running the Baileys out of business, Potter silently watches from his office's cracked door as Billy frantically searches for the money. Returning to the loan company, Billy wildly searches through piles of papers in the office. At the same time, Violet has come to ask George for a loan to help her start a life over again in New York. Uncle Billy, talk to Harry. He's on the telephone. Hurry up, Uncle Billy. It's Harry. Long distance, Washington. Hey, here's Harry on the phone. You know, your nephew, remember? Harry is. Hurry up. Hello, hello. Oh, yeah, yes, Harry. Yes, everything, everything's fine. Well, my head is seventy thousand dollars. It's got to be somewhere. Character. If I had any character, you know, it takes a lot of character to leave your hometown, and start all over again. I'm not Yeah. No. no, here now. You're broke, aren't you? I know, but what do you, you want to do? Hawk your furs, not a hat? Want to walk to New York? 
You know, they charge for meals and rent up there, just the same as doing Bedford Falls. Yeah, sure. No, no, it's a loan. No, that's my business, building and loan. Besides, you'll get a job. Good luck to you. I'm glad I know you, George Bailey. Say hello to New York for me. Yeah, yeah, sure, I will. Well, let's hear from you once in a while. Merry Christmas, will I? Merry Christmas, George. Mr. Bailey. Oh, Mr. Carter, I'm sorry. I was right with you. Uncle Billy, man. Behind the closed door of Uncle Billy's office, George hears Billy's confession that he has accidentally and carelessly lost the money. What's the matter with you? George searches in the obvious places in the office and then races through the snow, retracing Uncle Billy's path in a vain attempt to find the cash. Did you buy anything? Nothing, not even a stick of gum. All right, all right. Now we'll go over every step you took since you left the house, right? right. This way. George panics when he realises Uncle Billy's stupidity, then becomes enraged, trying to slap some sense into him. And did you put the envelope in your pocket? George is thoroughly depressed and disheartened by the catastrophes of the day. He wanders home, ready to give up and on the verge of possible financial ruin. As he enters into a Christmas tree decorated living room, he's thoroughly distracted, disturbed and disorientated. His daughter Janie is practising Heart the Herald Angels Sing on the family piano. And Mary is decorating the Christmas tree with the oldest son. The Merry Christmas tree was for the window. No, I left it at the office. Is it snowing? Yeah, it just started. Well, where's your coat and hat? I left them at the office. What's the matter? Nothing's the matter. Everything's all right. <laughs> Come on, Pete, you're a big boy. You can... As a fear-stricken George tearfully clutches his son Tommy to his chest and kisses him, he ignores his wife and his other children. Mary happens to notice George's private display of emotion, self-absorbed with thoughts of scandal and prison. In an extreme close-up, Mary senses something is wrong as George's little boy decorates his head with tinsel. The tinny sound of Hark the Herald Angels Sing played by his daughter off-screen causes George to scream at her in frustration. The family turn towards him, shocked that he's shown such an uncharacteristic cruelty towards them with his tongue lashing. I don't want the families over here. It's the Christmas season, but he feels no love or the spirit of giving 
uninterested in the party being planned for that evening. And as if this were not enough, George finds that his little girl Zuzu, played by Carolyn Grimes, is sick with a cold, caught while walking home with a coat unbuttoned so she could protect the rose that she'd won at school. What's the matter with Susan? Oh, she's got a cold. She's in bed. Caught it coming home from school. They gave her a flower for a prize and she didn't want to crush it, so she didn't button up her coat. George feels that everything is a burden, blaming his daughter's cold on the old Granville house. Is she running at temperature? What is this? Just a teensy one, 99.6. She'll be all right. Of course, it's this old house. I don't know why we don't all have pneumonia. Drafty old barn up the place. Might well be living in a refrigerator. Why do we have to live here in the first place and stay around this measly, crummy old town? George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, Troy. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you spell frankincense? I don't know. I asked your mother. Where are you going? Go up to see Zuzu. You told me to ride a plate for the... George leaves the kitchen, goes upstairs to see Zuzu. Yet another annoyance occurs to him on the way upstairs. He grabs onto the ball post at the bottom of the stairway railing and once again it comes off in his hand. With a crazed look on his face, he's ready to heave it away in anger, but he restrains himself and recovers enough to replace it. What happened to you? I want a flower. Uh, wait, now, where do you think you're going? Want to give my flower a drink? All right, all right, I'll give the give Daddy the flower. I'll give it a drink. Now, here. Look, Daddy. Pay. In a tender but sad scene at Six Zuzu's bedside. Zuzu greets her daddy and shows him the flower that she has won. When the petals fall off her flower, she hands them to her father to paste them back on. Unable to fix the flower, he turns away and pretends, but he actually puts the loose rose petals in his pocket. Back downstairs, we then see George shouting into the phone at Mrs. Welch, Zuzu's school teacher, blaming her for Zuzu's illness. Is that Zuzu's teacher? Yes. Hello. Hello, Mrs. Welch. This is George Bailey. I'm Zuzu's father. Say, what kind of a teacher are you anyway? What do you mean sending her home like that, half naked? You realize she'll probably end up with pneumonia on account of you? Is this the sort of thing we pay taxes for, to have teachers... Have teachers like you, stupid, silly, careless people, that send our kids home without any clothes on. You know, maybe my kids aren't the best dressed kids, and maybe they don't have any decent clothes. Oh, that's stupid. Hey, hello, Mrs. Welch. I, I want to apologize. Hello? Hello? She's hung up. I'll hang her up. What is that? Hello, who's this? Oh, Mr. Welch. Okay, that's fine, Mr. Welch. Give me a chance to tell you what I really think of your wife. George, Will you George. get out and let me handle this? Hello. Hello. What? Oh, you will, huh? Okay, Mr. Welch. Anytime you think you're man enough, you... Hello. Any... Uh... Dad, how do you spell hallelujah? How should I know? What do you think I am? A dictionary? Tommy, stop that. Stop it. 
Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it, stop it! George kicks over a table with models, drawings and architectural blueprints of bridges and buildings that he's been working on and dreaming about, the profession he was forced to abandon. Self-destructively he throws things wildly about and then turns to see his kids and his wife looking at him with tears in their eyes. I'm sorry, Mary. Janie, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I... You go on and practice. Pete, I owe you an apology too. I'm sorry. What do you want to know? Nothing, Daddy. What's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you... Mary. Bed for 247, please. Is Daddy in trouble? Yes, Pete. Shall I pray for him? Yes, Jenny. There's nothing else for George to do but to turn to Potter, sitting Scrooge-like in his bank. Uncle Billy? I'm in trouble, Mr. Potter. I need help. Through some sort of an accident, my company shortened their accounts. The bank examiner got there today. I've got to raise $8,000 immediately. Oh, that's what the reporters wanted to talk to you about. The reporters? Yes, they called me up to, from your building and loan. Oh, there's a man over there from the DA's office, too, who's looking for you. Please help me, Mr. Potter. Help me, won't you, please? Can't you see what it means to my family? I'll pay any sort of a bonus on the loan, any interest. If you still want the building and loan, I'm... George, I'm... could it possibly be there's a slight discrepancy in the books? No, sir, there's nothing wrong with the books. I've just misplaced $8,000. I can't find it anywhere. And as if the humiliation of asking for Potter's help wasn't enough, he's forced to sit there in a chair much lower than that of Potter bearing down on him from his much higher wheelchair. Have you notified the police? No, sir, I, I didn't want the publicity. Harry's homecoming tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, going to believe that one. What have you been doing, George? Um, playing the market with the company's money? No, sir, no, sir, I haven't. Oh, is it a woman, then? Uh, you know, it's all over town that you've been giving money to Violet Bick. What? <laughs> Not that it makes any difference to me, but why do you come to me? Why don't you go to Sam Wainwright and ask him for the money? I can't get a hold of him. He's in Europe. Well, what about all your other friends? Well, they don't have that kind of money, Mr. Potter. You know that. You're the only one in town that can help me. <laughs> I've suddenly become quite important. <laughs> well, what kind of security would I have, George? Have you got any stocks? No, sir. Bond? Real estate? Collateral of any kind? I have some life insurance. $15,000 policy. Yes. Uh, how much is your equity in it? $500. $500? And you asked me to lend you 8,000. Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. 
No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. <laughs> You're worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them to let you have 8000 You know why? Because they run you out of town on a rail. But I tell you what I'm going to do for you, George, since the uh, state examiner is still here. As a stockholder of the building and loan, I'm going to swear out a warrant for your arrest. Misappropriation of funds, manipulation, malfeasance. All right, George. Go ahead, go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. <laughs> yeah, Bill, this is Potter. And now, in one of the darkest sections of the film, George wanders out on Christmas Eve into the dark night. Heading for Martini's, the Italian restaurant and bar. Yeah, Merry Christmas! Glad you come! How about some of that good spaghetti? We got everything. Seated at the bar, he drinks heavily and utters a prayer for help that he's heard up above. Bartender Nick, played by Sheldon Leonard, and Mr. Martini are worried about his heavy drinking. Are you all right, George? Want somebody to take you home, huh? Why you drink so much, my friend? Please go. Nearby at the bar is Mr. Welch, played by Stanley Andrews, the husband of Zuzu's school teacher. This Mr. George Bird. you talk to my wife like that, you'll get worse. She cried for an hour. It isn't enough she's slave teaching you stupid kids how to read and write, and you have to ball her out, eh? Get out of here, Mr. Welsh! Ah, wait a minute. I want to pay for my drink. Never mind the money. You get out of here, quick! You're my best friend. Get out! George interprets the sock in the mouth as the only answer to his prayer. He reaches for his insurance policy in his coat pocket, convinced that his suicide will be the best solution for everybody. Don't worry. His name is Welsh. He don't come into my place no more. Oh, wow. That's what I get for praying. The last time he come in here, you hear that, Nick? Where's my insurance policy? Oh, no, please, no go this way, Mr. Oh, Bailey. No, no, you no feels good. Sit down and rest. Please, no go away. Please. We now move on to possibly one of the most famous scenes in the movie. Here, George is wandering despondently outside into the dark, snowy night and gets into his car. He drunkenly crashes the car into a tree, abandoning it to go on foot. What do you think you're doing? Now look what you did. My great-grandfather planted this tree. Hey, you! Hey, you! Come back here, drunken fool! Get this car out of here! Stumbling into the path of an oncoming truck in the snowstorm, he heads for the river. Hey, what's the matter with you? Look where you're going!
standing in the middle of the town bridge looking down into its icy depths. During these hard times, he loses faith in life itself and is on the verge of suicide. Before he jumps to his death, an odd elderly stranger, the guardian angel Clarence, hurtles himself into the swirling icy water. He flounders and calls out for help from below, forcing himself to be rescued by George. George instinctively jumps in after him, forgetting for a moment that he'd been contemplating killing himself just seconds before. They're both pulled from the water by the toll house keeper, who takes them into the toll house to dry off. I didn't have time to get some stylish underwear. Wife gave me this on my last birthday. <laughs> I passed away in it. They hang their wet clothes on a line strung in the room and the stranger also dries off his favourite book The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. You what? To save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Go through with what? Suicide. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where do you come from? Heaven. I had to act quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you tried to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lip's bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? The toll house keeper falls from his chair, thinking they're both crazy, and rushes outside to escape from their company. <laughs> well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody? AS2, what, what, what's that AS2? Angel, second class. <laughs> Cheerio, my good man. Oh, brother. What with Martini putting those drinks? George asks why he was sent to save him and berates his heavenly messenger. What's with you? What did you say just a minute ago? Why do you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now think just things like that. How do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wings. Oh, I've got to earn them. 
And you'll help me, won't you? Sure, sure. How? By letting me help you. One way you can help me. You don't happen to have 8,000 bucks on you. Oh, you? no, no. We don't use money in heaven. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. I keep forgetting. Comes in pretty handy down here, bub. Oh, tut, tut, tut. Uh, <laughs> I found it out a little late. I'm worth more dead than alive. Now, look, you mustn't talk like that. I won't get my wings with that attitude. You just don't know all that you've done. If it hadn't been for you... Yeah, if it hadn't been for me, everybody would be a lot better off. My wife and my kids and my friends. And my... Look, little fella, why you go off and haunt somebody else. No, you? now you don't understand. I've got my job. Oh, shut up, will you? Oh, this isn't going to be so easy. Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, right? Oh, I don't know. I guess you're right. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Looking heavenward, Clarence checks with his heavenly employers and gets the okay from Angel Joseph. He is permitted to grant George's wish. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been bored. In an instant, the snow stops. The wind blows the door open, and George ceases to exist. What'd you say? You've never been born. You don't exist. You haven't a care in the world. No worries, no obligations, no $8,000 to get, no potter looking for you with a sheriff. Say something else in that ear. Sure, you can hear out of it. What's well, a doggone thing? I haven't heard anything out of that ear since I was a kid. With no cares, worries and obligations, things change. Stop bleeding too, George. He can hear out of his bad ear. His lip has stopped bleeding from Mr. Welch's punch and his clothes are dry. What do you know about that? What's Stop snoring out here, doesn't it? Well, I, uh, what's happening here? What I need is a couple of good stiff drinks. How about you, Angel? You want a drink? <laughs> Come on, as soon as these clothes of ours are dry. The clothes are dry. I wouldn't know about that. Still harder than I thought. Come on, get your clothes on. We'll stroll up to my car and get. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'll stroll. You fly. What we now discover is that George's freedom now brings a completely new set of problems. He has no friends, no family, and no sense of identity. What's the matter? Well, this is where I left my car, and it isn't here. You have no car? Well, I had a car, and it was right here. I guess nobody moved. On their return to Martini's for a drink, where George expects to return to his normal life, George finds that his smashed car is gone. Well, I'm the fellow that owns the car that ran into your tree. What tree? What do you mean, what tree? This tree, here, I ran into it. Cut a big gash. He also learns that the town of Bedford Falls has now been renamed Pottersville. You must mean two other trees. You had me worried. One of the oldest trees in Pottersville. These minor changes are a foreshadowing of what George Bailey will see on his fantasy journey with Clarence. Don't think I know where I live? What's the matter with you? He'll be shown how badly Bedford Falls has fared and how different life would have been without him and his good deeds. I don't know. Either I'm off my nut or he is. Or you are. It isn't me. Well, maybe I left the car up at Martini's. Well, come on, Gabriel. Clarence! Clarence, Clarence. 
Martinis has now become a smoky, sleazy joint called Nick's Place, owned by a belligerent Nick, the former bartender, who doesn't seem to know George. Oh, hello, Nick. Hey, where's the martini? Want a martini? Oh, no, martini, your boss. Where is he? Hey, look, I'm the boss. You want a drink or don't you? Okay, all right. Double bourbon, will you? Quick, huh? Okay. What's yours? I was just thinking. I... It's been so long since I... <laughs> Look, mister, I'm standing here waiting for you to make up your mind. That's a good man. I was just thinking uh, of a flaming rum punch. Uh, no, it's not cold enough for that. Not nearly cold enough. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I got it. Mulled wine, heavy on the cinnamon and light on the clothes. Oh, give me light and be lively. Hey, look, mister. We save hard drinks in here for men who want to get drunk fast, and we don't need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere. Is that clear? Or do I have to slip you my lip for a convincer? What's he talking about? Nick, Nick. Just give him the same as mine. He's okay. Okay. What's the matter with him? Never saw a Nick act like that before. You see a lot of strange things from now on. Oh, yeah. Hey, little fella, you worry me, you know. You... With his childlike and naive nature, Clarence is unafraid to discuss angels with the disbelieving Nick and the others in the bar. No wonder you jumped in the river. I jumped in the river to save you so I could get my wings. Uh-oh. Uh Somebody's just made it. Made what? Every time you hear a bell rings, it means that some angel's just got his wings. Uh, I think maybe you better not mention uh, getting your wings around here. But Why? Don't they believe in angels? I... Yeah, I believe. Oh, why should they be surprised when they see one? Uh, he never grew up. He's... Uh, how old are you anyway, Clarence? 293. Uh, next May. That does it. Out you two pixies go through the door or out the window. What, Nick? What's wrong? No, that's another thing. Where do you come off? Thought to be two pixies, they're about to be thrown out of the bar when druggist Mr. Gower comes stumbling in. Hey, hey, you rummy there. Come in, come in. Didn't I tell you never to come panhandling around here? Mr. Gower, this is George Bailey. Don't you know me? Oh. No. Throw him out. Throw him out. Mr. Gower! Hey, what is it? Hey, Nick! Nick, isn't that Mr. Gower the druggist? You know, that's another reason for me not to like you. That rumhead spent 20 years in jail for poisoning a kid. If you know him, you must be a jailbird yourself. Uh, would you show these gentlemen to the door? Sure. This way, yeah. gentlemen. Hey, uh, 
Get me. I'm giving out wings. <laughs> you see, George, you were not there to stop Gower from putting that poison into the capsule. What do you mean I wasn't there? Remember the stick? Hey, what's going on around here? What? What? Well, this ought to be Martini's place. In the snow outside the bar, George finds out for himself that he has no identity, no papers, no cards, no driving license, and no insurance policy. And Zuzu's flower petals are gone too, but he's been offered a unique chance. What else are you? What are you? You a hypnotist? No, of course not. Well, then why am I seeing all these strange things? Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Well, if I wasn't born, who am I? You're nobody. You have no identity. Oh, what do you mean, no identity? My name's George Bailey. There is no George Bailey. You have no papers, no cards, no driver's license, no 4F card, no insurance policy. They're not there either. What? Zuzu's petals. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. Wait a minute here, wait a minute here. Oh, this is some sort of a funny dream I'm having. So long, mister, I'm going home. Home? What home? Now, shut up, cut it out! You, you, you're, you, you're crazy, that's what I think. You're, you're screwy. You're driving me crazy, too. I'm seeing things here. I'm going home and see my wife and family. You understand that? And I'm going home alone. How am I doing, Joseph? Thanks. Well, I didn't have a drink. Bedford Falls, without George, has become a nightmare town. A garish, noisy Las Vegas-style vision filled with sleazy characters and sleazy bars and strip joints. In fact, it's no longer called Bedford Falls, but Pottersville. In Pottersville, George finds out his existence has been wiped out, and he's now afforded a glimpse into the horrors that developed over the years without him. He has already discovered that Mr Gower, the druggist, would now have been sent to prison. He is now an alcoholic bum as the tragedy of the poison prescription delivery had not been averted without George's intervention, and the boy died. The Bailey building alone was up there! They went out of business years ago. Potter now runs everything and life is so very different. It is dismal, merchandise capitalism at its worst. The peaceful small town of Bedford Falls is now the garish Babylon of Pottersville, filled with bars, pool halls, midnight dance clubs, pawn shops, burlesque houses and peep shows. Prostitutes and drunks roam the streets. Home, I'm going off my nut. Where do you live? Well, now, doggone it, Ernie, don't you start pulling that stuff. You know where I live, 320 Sycamore. The building and loan, gone, replaced by a jitterbug dance hall. Straighten me out here. Look, I, I got some bad liquors. Not... We see Violet, now a cheap, gaudily made-up floozy, selling her body, and she's arrested by police in front of the Diamond Dance Hall. Your house a hundred times. 
Look, bud, what's the idea? I live in a shack in Pottersfield. My wife ran away three years ago and took the kid, and I ain't never seen you before in my life, see? Okay, well, just step on it. Just get me... Bailey Park, George's dream of affordable housing for everyone, no longer exists. George's best friends, Bert and Ernie, no longer recognise him. Of course it's the place. This house ain't been lived in for 20 years. What's up, Ernie? I don't know, but we better keep our eye on this guy. He's bats. The old Granville house at 320 Sycamore is exactly as it was before he and Mary moved in. Empty, haunted deserted for 20 years and slowly becoming a dilapidated cheerless mansion. Mary! Mary! Tommy! Pete, Janie, Drew, where are you? They're not here, George. You have no children. George would have no children because he himself was never born. No fast moves. Come on out here, both of you. Bert! Thank heaven you're here. Back there. Bert! What's happened to this house? Wait, where's Mary? Where's my kids? Watch him, Bert. Oh, Bert, come on, come on, Ernie, come on. what's the matter with you two guys? You, you, you were here on my wedding night. You both of you stood out there on the porch and sung to us. Don't you remember? I think I better be going. Look, now, why don't you be a good kid and we'll take you into a doctor. Everything's going to be all right now. Bert, now listen to it. Ernie, will you take me over to my mother's house? Sure, Bert, listen, it's that fellow right. there. He says he's an angel. Yeah. He's trying to hypnotize I, I hate to do this Bert, to you, listen. bud, but... Ryan George! Ryan George! Joseph! Oh, shut up! Oh, Joseph! Joseph! Where'd he go? Where'd he go? I, I had George's mother is now the proprietress of Mar Bailey's boarding house. And when George arrives at the old family home, he's greeted not with the love of his mother, but with a weary, unhappy, hardened, frightened and suspicious look. George, I, I thought sure you'd remember me. George who? If you're looking for a room, there's no vacancy. Please help me. Something terrible's happened to me. I, I don't know what it is. Something's Uncle Billy, who attempted to run the building alone after the death of Peter Bailey, would go insane when it collapsed and became institutionalised in an insane asylum. What? Well, I know everybody you know. What you, your brother-in-law, Uncle Billy. You know him? Well, sure I do. When did you see him last? Today, over at his house. It's a lie. He's been in the insane asylum ever since he lost his business. And if you ask me, that's where you belong. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life... As George stumbles down the steps of Mar Bailey's boarding house after his mother has shut him out, his confused, desperate and horrified face is viewed in a tremendous close-up. Clarence wisely shows George how much his life has mattered, and he begins to understand the differences his absence made in others and himself. Are you sure this is Bailey Park? 
When George attempts to locate Bailey Park, he finds a cemetery where Bailey Park once stood. Look where are the houses? You weren't here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. There, in the graveyard, in a harrowing scene, he finds his brother Harry's grave and a tombstone with the dates 1911 to 1919. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Clarence. Yes, George? Where's Mary? Oh, well, I, I, I can't... Uh... I don't know how you know these things, but tell me, where is she? I'm if you not... know where she is, tell me... Slowly, where... George realises that Clarence is right. Tell me where she is. But he feels that if he can just find Mary, things will be back to normal. An old maid. She never married. Where is Mary? Where is she? she... Where is she? She's just about to close up the library! There must be some easier way for me to get my wings. Mary is discovered as an old maid librarian. A sad, lonely, frightened and plain widow without a spring of joyfulness in her step. Her hair is tied back tightly and she wears unsightly spectacles. George approaches towards her as she closes up the library. Mary! George, don't you know me? What's happened to us? I don't know. You let me go. Mary, please. Oh, don't do this to me. Please, Mary. Help me. Where's our kids? I need you, Mary. Help me. In a panic, she runs from George when he accosts her. Bert the cop comes to her defence but he's knocked to the ground and George runs desperately from the centre of town with gunshots ringing his ears. Stand back! At the bridge where he jumped in, George pleads with the angel to end the vision and to go back and to take back the wish that he'd never been born. He realises the consequences of having never existed and begs to be restored to life, to a sense of belonging to everything and communicating with those around him. He prays for the chance to rejoin the living, to reclaim his social identity, his home, his family and his life, accepting it for what it is rather than worrying about what it's not. I don't care what happens to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Terrence, please. Please. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Suddenly, his life returns. The wind dies down and a gentle snow begins to fall. Bert's police car turns onto the bridge. George! You all right? To the first person he encounters when restored to life, George asks an important identity question. George, Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there and I thought maybe you... 
Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Birch! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals! Zuzu... There they are! Birch! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! His mouth is bleeding again. Zuzu's petals are in his pocket. Joyous, he calls out Mary's name, welcomes his ramshackle car still smashed into the tree with a door that doesn't open and close properly. He races back through town, enthusiastically and ecstatically greeting every familiar face he sees, shouting out Merry Christmas. Returning home, George bursts through his front door and finds the bank examiner and the local sheriff. Mary! Mary! Well, hello, Mr. Bank Examiner. How are... Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. I know, $8,000. George, I've got a little paper. I'll bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas, reporters. Where's Mary? Mary! Oh, look at this wonderful old drafty house. Mary! He greets them with a smile, assuming that they're there to punish him for bankruptcy and to serve him with a warrant for his arrest. He's delighted at the prospect. He happily leaps up the stairs, accidentally yanking out, kissing and carefully replacing the railing post ball on the stair post for the third time. He chuckles to himself. Oh, I could eat you up. Where's your mother? We're looking for you. With Uncle Billy. Zuzu, Zuzu, my little ginger snap, how do you feel? Fine, not a smidge of temper. Not a smidge of temper. Mary enters the house and runs into his arms on the stairs. George, George, Mary. darling, where are you? George, darling, where are you? Oh, George, 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 are you real? Oh, George, George, you have no idea what's happened to me. You have no idea what happened. Well, come on, George, come on downstairs. Quick, we're on the way. All right. Come on. Come on in here now. Now you stand right over here by the tree. Right there, and don't move. Dragging him downstairs to stand in front of the Christmas tree, she tells him. Come here now. George, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Mary has brought his faithful friends relatives, depositors and citizens of Bedford Falls to their home. Mary did it, George. Mary did it. She told some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions, just the George in trouble and tell me They have all rallied with goodwill and Christmas spirit to support him and to save him from going to jail. Almost everyone in Bedford Falls who was positively affected by his presence is there. There's Mr Martini, Mr Gower, Violet, Annie the Cook and all the people who participated in the bank run. Incredulous, 
George silently says the name of each one as they come forward, relieved and thankful that they're alive to him. Proving their faith in him for the life he had given them, the townspeople collect gifts of enough money from their private reserves and put them in a large basket. The money amounts to thousands of dollars, enough to save his business from Potter's control. Billy excitedly pours out the donations onto the table. Quiet. Now get this. It's from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Janie plays Hark the Herald Angels Sing on the piano and everyone joins in singing. Even the bank examiner contributes to the bulging pile of cash and the sheriff tears up the arrest warrant. Flying through a snowstorm, Harry arrives. With that, the voices of the people burst into communal singing as Auld Lang Syne fills the air. George glances down at the pile of money. His eye catches what is buried on the pile. There is Clarence's copy of Tom Sawyer left for him as a gift. Zuzu opens it and they find an inscription written inside. Only George realises the full significance of the bell ringing. It rings for Clarence, who has earned his wings by succeeding with a tough assignment, and also for George's awakening of consciousness through divine intervention in his experiences, enabling him to be freed from the confines of earthly pressures. He has found his own rewards and gifts, life, redemption and freedom.
It's interesting to note here that the Scrooge-like covetous banker Potter, despite reprehensibly stealing money from the Bailey building and loan and helping to cause George's suicide attempt, remained unpunished and unrepentant. Something unusual for the average Hollywood movie at this time. The inclusion of this cliché would have diluted the message of the movie that one man's life touched everyone else's. It would also have weakened the sentimental ending as the community of characters celebrated despite Potter's successful unpunished chicanery and spiritual bankruptcy. Frank Capra visited the picturesque Seneca Falls in New York State in 1945. Here it is believed that he was inspired to model Bedford Falls on the town. The town now has an annual It's a Wonderful Life festival in December. There is a Hotel Clarence and an It's a Wonderful Life museum opened in 2010 by Carolyn Grimes who plays Zuzu in the movie. Seneca Falls has proudly stated its association to the film since the mid-90s when a local reporter made the connection. However, a dispute rages at the heart of the pretty town as to whether Capra really was inspired by Seneca Falls or not. The evidence supporting the claim includes a story from the town's barber who claimed that he cut Capra's hair in 1945. The director allegedly asked him about the town and a plaque on one of its bridges which was dedicated to Antonio Varacalli, a local who drowned saving the life of a woman who jumped off it. However, Janine Bassinger, who wrote a book about the film, declared that the notion was utter nonsense and she has found no evidence of Seneca Falls being referenced in Capra's diaries or any of the film's production materials. She never heard Capra mention the town at all. The movie itself was shot at RKO Radio Pictures Studio in Culver City, California, and the 89-acre RKO Movie Ranch in Encino, where Bedford Falls consisted of art director Max Rees' Oscar-winning sets that were originally designed for the 1931 epic film Cimarron that covered four acres. It was assembled from three separate parts, with a main street stretching 300 yards, about three city blocks, with 75 stores and buildings. There was a residential neighbourhood as well. For its wonderful life, Capra built a working bank set, added a tree-lined centre parkway and planted 20 full-grown oak trees to the existing sets. Pigeons, cats and dogs were allowed to roam the mammoth set to give the town a lived-in feel. Due to the requirement to film an alternate universe setting as well during the different seasons, the set was extremely adaptable. RKO created chemical snow for the film, for previously snow was created using crushed cornflakes and dialogue would have to be dubbed when actors walked across it. Filming started on April 15th 1946 and ended July 27th that year, exactly on deadline for the 90 day principal photography schedule. RKO's movie ranch in Encino was raised in 1954. There are now only two surviving locations from the film. The first is the swimming pool that was unveiled during the famous dance scene where George courts Mary. It's located in the gymnasium at the Beverly Hills High School and is still in operation as of last year. And the second is the Martini Home, still existent in California. 
Capra also filmed a number of sequences that were subsequently cut, the only remnants remaining being rare stills that had been unearthed. A number of alternative endings were considered, with Capra's first script having Bailey falling to his knees reciting the Lord's Prayer. The script also called for the opening scene to have the townspeople praying. Feeling that an overly religious tone didn't have the emotional impact of family and friends rushing to rescue George, the closing scenes were rewritten. It's a Wonderful Life has become a staple of Christmas television programming the world over. More than seven decades after its release in the US cinemas, Frank Capra's story of the suicidal man and his nearly too late appreciation of his sleepy small town existence has burrowed its way into the public consciousness as a festive feel-good classic. But the black and white classic didn't have such auspicious beginnings, and Capra wound up making a few enemies during the production, and surprisingly, during its initial release, it was not considered a hit. In fact, it was something of a Christmas turkey. The film's success rather mirrored that of the book. Although some critics were warm in reviews, Capra's main memory of its wonderful life's critical reception was a major lambasting. Worse, the punters weren't tempted either. The film made a loss of $525,000, although it's interesting to note it did better in the box office charts than its rival that year, Miracle on 34th Street. It's a Wonderful Life gained better recognition at the Oscars. Producers had budged its release date from January 47 to December 46 to make it eligible for the race. It earned five nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Stewart, Best Film Editing and Best Sound Recording but it was snubbed at each turn, missing out to the best years of our lives in four of the five categories. It's a Wonderful Life was considered such a flop by the studio that they let its copyright lapse. This meant that by the 70s, there was a festive Frank Capra film available for networks to screen for free. As much of a godsend during the Christmas break for television programmers as Clarence Oddbody was for George Bailey. Such a regular occurrence was the screening of the film. Film historian Leonard Malting would recall to Vanity Fair, I remember one Christmas Eve, when it was in the public domain, my wife and I played a game called TV Roulette. We literally kept changing channels and came upon it in different stages of its progress. But the thing is, you can't not watch. You can't turn it off. For me personally, it's one of the most uplifting and heartwarming movies ever created, perfectly capturing the human spirit through love, faith and second chances. It's a tale of recognition and redemption with a host of richly developed characters, masterful direction and James Stewart and the rest of the cast here are at their best. With the universal themes of good deeds, evil villains and good old-fashioned seasonal warmth and holiday cheer, it's simply one of the most essential of all the Christmas movies. A true classic that is almost impossible to watch without a smile on your face. And that's it for this very special Stinking Paws episode. 
Our regular show will continue over the next few weeks as always, but for now, from myself, Charlie, Liam and Paul, we'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and thanks for listening. Cheers, guys. See you soon. <laughs>